In these bleak days, humanity is at a breaking point. Economies are tanking. The woke mob is canceling everything. And the little guy who's just trying to run a small business is getting screwed from both ends. But not all is lost. Amidst the chaos, two men offer up their voices in the darkness, dropping 2,000-pound laser-guided truth bombs on today's lunacy. Introducing the Sirens of Sanity, David Pridham and L. Bradley Sheaf. Brad Secret Agent Man, the great late Johnny Rivers, uh, bringing it home, and really one of the one of the iconic songs of the uh, of the uh, you know, our our salad days. But it it really brings to mind what we're here to talk about today. Is uh, we'll get to in a few minutes. We're here to delve a little more into the uh, Kennedy assassination with our dear old friend, and I believe a distant relative of yours, Rob Clark. I could be a distant relative of mine. You know, they say that you're within like six links or whatever from everybody. And so if that's true, then yeah, we would be, uh, we would in fact be distant relations. It also means I'm somehow distantly related to the Dalai Lama, which I've always thought was interesting. Well, there you go. There you go. You learn something new every day. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course, this is David Pridham and Brad Sheaf. We are here a couple of secret, at least one secret agent man and another just a general bon vivant uh, here. Mm-hmm. And of course, Brad, we uh, once again, as always, we mean business here in 2023. We have actually hit the ground running this year and uh, we're going to have a great show here today with Rob Clark. Um, but before that, some housekeeping. Of course, you can learn more about our program on our website, ipfrequently.com. Follow us on the uh, InstaFace and the Twitter uh, at IP underscore frequently, really wherever you get your social media, go out there and type in uh, at IP underscore frequently, and you'll you'll get a you'll get a, your um, money's worth there. And finally, you can get us anywhere you uh, uh, get your podcast. Really, and remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, of course, Brad. This week, uh, what we like to do, even before we get to our guest, is talk about some of the big items of the day, the big items of the week. And, and this week, we really need to reflect, I think, on the JFK assassination because, again, there's a lot going on there. But before we do, um, I have a, a sort of a question that's come out of the holiday season, um, and it sort of was given to me anonymously. So, um, but I wanted to get your take on it because you're generally a good guy. We used to have a segment on the show where you give relationship advice. And, uh, and and so I thought it would be a good idea to maybe run this by you because it is sort of a, a mystery to me as to how to solve this. And maybe you can solve it. Maybe we'll start up the relationship advice segment again. I don't know. Okay, buddy. Well, I, you know what? I'm will- It's a new year. I'm willing to try it. Let's do it. Well, let's say, and, and I'm going to do this, cast this all in the hypothetical. Okay. I don't want, okay. because I, I, I don't you, you want know, to. You have a friend. 
I have a friend. Okay. okay, And I, what I don't want to do is because I I was told when this was provided to me that I shouldn't uh, do anything to sort of out this person so that anyone listening to the podcast. And again, we have tens of thousands of people that listen each and every week uh, could guess who it is and then somehow make trouble for this person or worse yet, it gets back to me because it's my wife's sister. So I don't want to, um, I don't want to do anything that jeopardizes that, but let's just say an anonymous person. Right. Let's let's refer to this person as the visage de tarte. The visage de tarte. Correct. Yeah. Um, let's just say uh, they're 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 in a relationship, and then they're out of the relationship. They're married, then they get a divorce, and oh. then they get into a new relationship, a recent relationship, and you come come you know to the holiday season, the big uh, the big uh, you know Christmas. Uh, Hanukkah, whatever floats your boat. And then, um, you know, you've been, you've been seeing this new person again, not the old, not the husband, they, uh, the new person for a couple of months. And then suddenly um, comes time to exchange gifts. So uh, you get to the Christmas, you know, the agreed upon exchange of gift time. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, she provides something and then he provides um, basically a piece of paper back saying, I ordered you a cut us us a couple of custom made pink sparkly tennis rackets but they're not ready yet they're being made probably by Uyghur slaves in china but uh they're not ready yet and uh you know they'll be um they'll, they'll be shipped at some point and then we'll have them and then we could play tennis to which um at, at which point this hypothetical woman which may or may not exist mm-hmm. um st- starts to get upset and cry and throws a fit now the question is one, do you have to actually present a physical gift on Christmas to someone that you've been dating a couple of months? Um, and if so, does that, you know, the, that physical gift have to have a certain net present value uh, to be deemed a gift? Uh, mm-hmm. Or is it the thought that counts? What, what, do you, what, what do you say about this? Or do you have more questions for me? There could be more questions. Maybe I can give you additional background information. Well, buddy, I, I am admittedly somewhat riddled with questions. I have to, I, I mean, I, I'm a little bit troubled by the fact that you ordered two sparkly pink tennis rackets, right? Because my, my presumption is he's going to play with one, the visage is going to play with the other. Mm-hmm. So that that is separately troubling. But that's a fairly thoughtful gift, right? I mean, you're having these things custom manufactured. You've only been dating a couple of months. You have to give a relationship at least, in my opinion, at least four to six weeks before you decide you're buying a gift at all, right? I mean, before you have any reason to be obligated into gift giving. So basically, you give that guy the four to six, that gives him two to four to come up with for the gift. And he gets something ordered, you know, finds out enough about his new paramour here to, to understand that she might like a little tennis gets custom rackets ordered. I don't play, as you well know. So I have no idea what a tennis racket, I literally have no idea what a tennis racket costs. Could be anywhere between 10 bucks and 300 bucks. I don't know. But the guy orders a custom set of tennis rackets. And of course they're not there, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't buy a thing in this world anymore because of COVID. Supply chains and COVID. COVID. And and frankly, both are just a cover for incredibly inept leadership. Mm -hmm. But you can't get a thing. And so- I don't know, man. I give the guy at least an A minus, if not an A for effort here. But, you know, he clearly doesn't realize what he's gotten himself into yet. And that of, of, instead of being seeing this as thoughtful and being appreciative and saying, hey, you know, this relationship might have legs. This guy's actually thinking about me. He's ordered a custom item for me. 
you, you just get the whole thing thrown back in your face. Yeah, that's. I mean, it makes you sort of throw up your hands. I I, I had the same um, view. I said, look, it's kind of it's kind of nice that uh, he wants to spend more time with this hypothetical visage de tart, and uh, you know, so maybe it's an activity they can learn together. Um, who knows? But I think it's. Listen, I think it's a good thing. And for, for those of you who are out there in a small business, which is a lot like a relationship, um, there's a lot to, to to unpack here. But part of it is the entitlement generation. Part of it is this love language of gifts. But uh, you know, people very often you have to look hard to see the thoughtfulness behind a uh, an act. Uh, if you will. And it's important to, it's important to do that. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously I completely agree, but when your love language is being entitled and setting your measure of entitlement at an otherworldly level with absolutely no foundation in the truth, it can be hard for you to, you know, find yourself in a relationship that you enjoy. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, it's good that we got that out of the way. And typically, what we like to do is talk about the big news items of the week. And, and obviously, uh, there's a lot going on in the world this week. But what we're going to talk about this week is with Rob Clark some of these Kennedy assassination documents uh, that have been recently released. And even more baffling is the fact that there are a lot of documents that are continuing to be held back. And you know, so Brad and I have gone back and forth on this over the past couple of years, and we'll give our view on this whole thing um the the whole kennedy assassination is baffling to me because it's sort of like you know certain people in life right um there's always something right there's always yeah. something and with the kennedy assassination it, it truly is there you know there's always something there are, there are witnesses that come forward that say they saw um i mean the, the witness we're going to talk to um uh rob about this ralph leon yates um, the day before, two days before the assassination, says he picked up a hitchhiker who looked like Oswald, who had a big, long rod in um, a newspaper, put it in the back seat of his car. He dropped him off at the school book depository. This guy, Ralph Leon Yates, goes back, tells a coworker about this on Wednesday before the assassination, two days before. And then the police force him to take two lie detector tests, which basically said he believed what he was saying. And so, and, and there are dozens of things like this. There are the people on the stairs in the building that didn't see Oswald go down the one set of stairs from the sixth floor to the first floor after the shooting. Um, you know, there's the whole uh, thing about the police car pulling up to his boarding house and beeping the horn uh, after he went into the boarding house to change before he went out and allegedly shot that cop. And it just goes on and on and on. And, um, and then you get to the grassy knoll and you get to all these people that are uh, behind the fence. And, and it, 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 there's just so much smoke there. And there are real people that gave these accounts. And to me, it's easy to say this is a, a, a big, you know, it's all fabricated and it, it was Oswald acting alone. But when you have all this smoke on so many different levels, there has to be, has to be something to some of it. I mean, what do you think? Uh, buddy, I agree. As as you know, and as the folks know who listen to the show, I, I you know largely ignored the Kennedy assassination for the vast majority of my life. I, I knew it had happened, and I was you know sort of generally aware of the conspiracy theories and things of that nature. But you you pulled me into it about a year ago, and again for me the the deciding factor, the thing that made me say, wait a minute, was this you know the magic bullet, which again I'm sure we'll get to 
with Rob. So I, you know, I'm sort of in, I kind of get it. I, 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 my belief is that there's more here than, you know, initially meets the eye or certainly that folks would want to meet the eye and all the rest of this. I agree. I mean, where there's that much smoke, you would think there would have to be some form of fire or at least someone with a vape pen, you know, really puffing away on it. Right. And I think if you find the person with the vape pen, who's creating the smoke, you start asking them questions that lead you down some investigative alleyways, if you will, and, and we can eventually get to the bottom of this thing. And if there's anyone who's going to get us there, it's going to be one Robert Ignatius Clark. Yeah. So why don't we do this, Brad? Why don't we take a uh, uh, take a little break and uh, we'll uh, take a breath and then we can transition to a discussion with Rob Clark about really the crime of the uh, 20th century. And I am convinced, Brad, it's 2023. Mm-hmm. I am convinced that this is the year you and I crack this thing with the help of one uh, Robert Clark. So welcome uh, back, Rob. Thank you. It's uh, great to be back. Thanks for having me back. Awesome. Rob, I got to ask you, first of all, if you went back in time, would you choose, and you could, assume you could, right? It's not something like that Stephen um, King novel where you there's always an obstacle, but if you could, would you try to save Kennedy or would you just sort of let it unfold and see who is on the knoll? Ooh, that's a tough question. That's one of those great hypotheticals. Um, and I've contemplated this before. Honestly, we know the outcome with JFK dying and the country where it is now and all the turmoil and corrupt uh, leadership and every, all the all the crap that we've gone through. I think I would try to save him just to see if it'd be any different. Yeah, well, that's so that's that's interesting, Brad. So you went the other way. Um but again, Brad in, in the hypothetical was slightly intoxicated. So that you could use that oh, as an excuse. <laughs> there you go. That's true. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, welcome back, Robin. One of the reasons we wanted to have you back on is because there was a recent dump of more uh, JFK previously classified documents that uh, came out in December. And, and you know, Brad and I jumped on the uh, National Archives site and started looking at them. And, uh, uh, you know, first of all, can you talk a little bit about the 1992 law that mandated that these documents be declassified and made public? And then I understand that there are other documents that are still not yet made public. And it seems like that's in contradiction to this law that said everything would be done by something like 2017. Yeah. I mean, here's the deal. And a don't would be a very accurate description of what we got, you know, back in December. But, you know, just to take everybody back in time and set this whole thing up, there was a lot of good uh, books coming out in the 80s concerning the Kennedy assassination because we had just went through the House Select Committee on Assassinations Investigation in the late 70s. So we were getting books like, you know, Best Evidence by David Lifton, uh, Reasonable Doubt by Henry Hurt, Crossfire by Jim Mars, uh, Jim Garrison on the Trail of the Assassins. And then finally, Oliver Stone his movie JFK came out in 1991. So you have this gradual progression and the tide was turning so much. And I think the the tipping point was essentially Oliver Stone's movie um, to create this uh, President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992. Um President George H.W. Bush um, signed the act into law on October the 26th, 1992. And what this basically was supposed to do was uh, they created an assassination records review board. Now, they put into this act 
a, a providence of 25 years, okay, that no matter what happens, and the ARB, the Assassination Records and Review Board, did declassify a number of documents, but that still left thousands still classified in some form or fashion. Um, but the end goal was in sight. So within 25 years of the creation of the JFK Act in 1992, which would be the year 2017, all of the previously classified documents could have been released in full, unredacted, no, no questions asked. The CIA could uh, plead their case for an extension if it compromised their uh, method of operations or s something to that effect. But they had to prove their case. They, they couldn't just say across the board, hey, we need more time. Uh, you know, we got thousands of documents that we, we, we you know, that, that we don't want to release because it, you know, it reveals our method of operations. So <clears throat> this has been going on. Each president since 2017 um, basically has been kicking the can down the road, you know, for the other guy, you know, first Obama, then Trump, then Biden. And of course, Biden just kicked the can down the road again. So here we are. Um, in 2023, we're five years past almost deadline that all these documents should have been released by now. No questions asked. Um, and we're not there. And finally, a group of researchers got together and, and they are suing uh, the CIA and the government and Joe Biden uh, to get these files released. I wonder, Brad, if some of these files weren't the ones that were found at uh, Biden's think tank. Well, that might be the cover, right? I mean, they said, oh, sorry, we had these JFK documents locked in this closet at this uh, think tank, which, again, is ironic if you're Joe Biden. Yeah, it's hard to believe he had a think tank. But that, so that's all interesting. And it seems like they're not going through the proper protocol as required by the law to, to withhold documents. I mean, the reality is what why would they continue to withhold? I mean, what I mean, it seems like everyone is dead or near dead, and what possible national security secrets could we have in documents from the 1963 timeframe that would require they be withheld? I mean, certainly these documents we got recently were withheld in 2017 for national security reasons, and now they're released. And is there anything in these documents you see that would show why they were withheld back in 2017? Um, you know, I've looked through the documents documents and, and of course not all of them um i maybe have only gotten maybe 1400 into the 14,000 or so that were released but from what i've seen so far it's stuff that's already been released and maybe maybe some things are unredacted now or partially unredacted uh, but some things are still fully redacted um with you know with no with no rhyme or reason you know i think to protect our sources and methods of intelligence gathering from 60 years ago. You know, if things has, have not progressed since then, uh, that's a problem, you know? I'd like to think that, you know, 60 years later, they don't, they don't gather intelligence and use the same sources and methods that they did 60 years ago. I mean, I have an idea of some things that they are trying to protect and we can get into that if uh, if you like. Yeah, what we'll get. To, what, how about some examples of that? 
Yeah. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of George Joannides. Uh, he was a CIA case officer back in the early 60s, working with Amworld, which was the program of moving manual Artemé and other anti-Castro exiles offshore. Okay. And they were also, he was also in charge of uh, supporting different uh, anti-Castro groups. But this guy, George Joannides, was kind of based in New Orleans in 1963. Um, and of course, Guess who else was in New Orleans in 1963? E. Harvey Oswald, mm-hmm. um, who famously had a little scuffle with a, a DRE delegate named Carlos Brunier, uh, and they both that they, they, he got arrested and went on to do a radio interview with Carlos Brunier, and so there was some definitely some hanky panky going on in New Orleans in 1963. But this guy, George Joannides, was in the middle of it. And so much so that they this guy, George Joannides, out of retirement in the 70s to be the CIA liaison to the HSCA when it came to giving them documents. So they put they made this guy the gatekeeper, this seemingly retired guy that had no ties whatsoever to anything. But in rea- actuality, he was in the middle of everything. Mm-hmm. And this guy specifically, um, a lot of his documents pertaining to him, Morley has been trying to get for the past oh, 15 to 17 years now. I mean, he, he sued to get them um, before and, and been denied and shut down. And so that is where I think there is some smoke. I don't think there's going to be any smoking guns per se in any of these documents that were released. There's a lot of tangential uh, Cuban related things, but when you get when you get knee deep in these documents, they don't really pertain to the assassination whatsoever, other than the fact that, you know, we were positioning it against Cuba back then. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that the CIA was involved in the assassination. It doesn't mean that um, Oswald was up on the sixth floor shooting. It's just something that they might not like to admit that they were doing back then. And I think they they have something to hide or else they would have released this guy's files a long time ago. I mean, that, that's what I struggle with. And Brad, you you were a you were a G man for a while. I mean, the, the, the Congress passed and the president signed a law saying all this stuff would be 100 percent public in by 2017 and 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 you could continue to withhold but only if you reach some threshold determination that the disclosure would somehow jeopardize national security or something like that I'm paraphrasing um and so they still withheld 20,000 some odd documents in 2017 and then they produced a few last year and now a few more this year and when you look at the documents they're producing and they're still redacted but when you look at the documents that they're producing it doesn't seem like any of this stuff should have been withheld in 2017. And I struggle with why in the world would um, they continue to withhold these documents unless there's some something they're trying to hide. I mean, all these people are dead. The plots against Castro is dead. The plots against Castro are dead. Everyone knows the mob was used in some form or fashion to you know, try to get Castro. Everyone, everyone knows about those connections. Everyone knows Clay Shaw was somehow associated with the CIA, all this stuff that we've talked about in the past. So why would, um, 
why would I, I struggle with why now in 2017, the folks would at the CIA or whoever is making these determinations as to what of these documents um, can and can't be disclosed, why they'd be still carrying water for what was a much more, I mean, well, who knows, but what was a pretty corrupt agency back in 1963. I'd be interested to get your thoughts on that. Oh, but I mean, I think, again, as I've said on this podcast a couple of times, you know, this is the same government that brought you Amtrak and the Susan B. Anthony dollar, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the government is not a well-run organization or a tight ship. So you either can take two uh, approaches to this, right? You either got to say, well, they're, they're purposefully doing it, right? So they know there's some critical documents that for whatever reason they don't want released, that might reveal sources and methods that might paint someone in a bad light for, for whatever reason, they're perp- they, they've been through them all. They know what they all say and they're holding some out or it's just incompetence. And the fact that most government apparatchiks in any government to include the U S government just don't care to do their job. You can point your finger at the CIA, but the CIA is an agency Right. And so it's just made up of thousands of people. So, I mean, you can say, well, the CIA isn't doing their job and that's fine. They're not. I mean, in my personal opinion, they, they are regularly not. But there's no one to really hold the feet to the fire. Whoever's in charge of the agency in any given time is a presidential appointee. So if a president wants to hold the person who's in charge, and that's typically what you would do, you'd say, well, who's running the show? And well, oops, that turns out to be an appointee of the very president who would be holding someone's feet to the fire. So, you know, my guess is that this is less about the CIA having actually sat down or, or anyone else, frankly, and gone through all of these thousands of documents that Rob describes and said, oh, man, here's here's truly a smoking gun or something that would make somebody look bad or reveal sources and methods. We're not going to let that go. I think it's much more of a nobody wants to do this job. It's a terrible job to review documents. They know nobody's going to get in trouble if they don't. So they, they take some dribs and drabs and they redact a few things and they roll them out there and they hope that that takes the heat off for a while. And they also know that in order to turn the heat up any, if someone's going to have to sue, that's going to cost them money. It's not going to cost the government anything. The government's just going to roll out the lawyers they're paying anyway to go and defend these suits. So I, again, I just think it's less about there really being some, you know, star chamber that knows all the facts and wants to conceal these and more about just general government incompetence. And, you know, just, they, they just don't care. No, nobody wants to do the job. They don't see it as being valuable. It's a drag to do it. No one's going to get in trouble if we don't. So we just won't. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think that's, I think that's probably, Probably right. I think a lot of it's probably incompetence, but some of this stuff is interesting. The one, Rob, the one document that uh, I, I saw called out in an article um, recently about the, the the dump in December was this one about George uh, Demurnschild. And, and can you tell us a little bit about his uh, his background and his relationship to this case? Uh, yeah, George Demurnschild. He was a a white Russian, he had a white Russian background, a very inter- international guy, spoke several languages, um, highly educated, some kind of old school Russian type royalty ties, I believe. Um, but over here, when he lived in the United States, he was an oil geologist. And when he was in Dallas, he kind of hang out in the white Russian community and through ties with 
uh, Marina Oswald, of course, being a Russian and speaking Russian. Um, she got introduced to several of these people and, you know, a couple of them being uh, George DeMornshield and his wife, Jean. And apparently the DeMornshields befriended the Oswalds while they were living in Dallas and, uh, you know, had several interactions with them and were friendly with them, did things for them uh, type of thing. And, uh, you know, whether or not, and and from what we know now, uh, George DeMornshield was, uh, doing basically the same thing that Clay Shaw was doing. He wasn't necessarily a CIA agent per se, but he was more of a uh, contact. So DeMorne Shield was sort of like a, um, I think he's described on Wikipedia as a bon vivant, like a man about town. Yeah, I appreciate a good bon vivant. I mean, and so, who and doesn't? So, and so one of the documents, Rob, I don't know if you saw this, this was on, on Fox the other night, but one of the documents is interesting because it's it's dated April of or it's it's dated after the fact, but it references the fact that some individuals at the Department of Defense were doing backgrounds on DeMoren Shield in April, late April of 1963, which is right after he had had a, a couple of meetings with Oswald. And um, when you start looking at some of these, and this is the one that some people have pointed out as the most as the most interesting. And full backgrounds were requested by um, uh, members of the Office of Security at the Department of Defense, et cetera, on 29 April 1963. And that, to me, was was really interesting um, to hear about because this is sort of right after he met with Oswald. It's almost like you know, he's providing information or he's doing something for them and they're sort of shepherding him through some sort of a process. But what, I don't know if you saw that document. If so, um, you know, what do you, what do you think about it? Yeah. Cause I think the, uh, the official excuse for DeMora shield going to Haiti was for, for work to be in, you know, as an oil geologist, I, you know, I don't know if Haiti has a lot of oil. I doubt it, <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is back when they were, were, were contemplating the overthrow of Papa Doc uh, Chevalier in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that, you know, the more she was more set down there is, is to be some kind of maybe a backdoor liaison for some reason uh, concerning that, um, as opposed to his uh, official cover, if you will, of being an oil geologist. Uh, the timing of it all just kind of makes sense so that i mean i think that's all interesting rob are there any other documents in this trove of documents dump of documents that you saw that interested you not really i mean nothing that we already did not know there was a lot of like i said a lot of repeat information and a lot of tangential uh information that really doesn't pertain to the case whatsoever i haven't seen anything yet that made me go oh my god you know that's you know a game changer but uh yeah, nothing like that. No, no smoking gun. Uh, so, so that that is incredibly helpful. I think a couple of other things that I found interesting. I, I did a little um, reading over the holidays, uh, getting ready for this interview, and um, one of the stories I read uh, concerns an individual called Ralph. And Brad and I don't talk about this, right? Brad and I were like a bride and a groom the night before the wedding, right? We don't talk about what's going to happen. You know, no coitus or any of that. We don't talk about it before we get on the podcast. We just sort of go. And so this will be news to Brad. And it, it, I'm sure you knew, you've heard about this, but there's this individual, Ralph Leon Yates, 
who worked for the Te- Texas Butcher Supply Company, which is obviously a big butchery here in uh, uh, Texas as a refrigeration mechanic. And on the Wednesday, two days before the assassination, he's driving around Oak Cliff. And Brad, you'll know Oak Cliff because that's where your good friend and I believe attorney Marcus Fettinger uh, lives. He re- resides over there. Um He's driving around Oak Cliff. It's mid-morning, and he picks up a hitchhiker. And the hitchhiker has a a, a brown paper bag, a long rod-like deal, and he says it's curtain rods when he's asked what they are. Puts them down in the back seat. This guy, Yates, says to the hitchhiker that – it was two days before the assassination – says to the hitchhiker that uh, um, Kennedy was coming to Dallas. It's exciting, yada, yada. And the hitchhiker responded by asking if – Yates thought someone could kill the president, and he then uh, said, you know, could it be done from the top of a building or a high window? Showed him a picture of a man with a rifle and asked Yates if it could be done with this rifle. And so Yates goes back to his um, his, uh, you know, the, the big Texas butcher supply company, which I believe is a brewery now. And then he starts uh telling co-workers about the story. This is on the, fr- the, the Wednesday before the assassination. And so the assassination happens. He, um, it, 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 it turns out, it, it, you know, originally uh, he didn't go to the police, but then he did a few days later. They gave him a couple of lie detectors. It was determined that there's no way, there's no way that um, Lee Harvey Oswald could have been the hitchhiker because at this time he was actually at the school book depository moving books, again, moving boxes of books. Um, and so there's this incredible story. He goes through a couple of um, iterations of lie detectors, and then he's ultimately institutionalized in an involuntary basis. And uh, like we tried to do with my mother-in-law recently. And um, uh, and, uh, and and so that's it. He's institutionalized for many years, and then he, now he's dead. And so, uh, Rob, have you heard that story? And what, what do you think about that story? Is it too fantastic to be real? Is it real? Do you think it has credibility? Well, it's it's one way or the other. I mean, there was a, a good number of instances, um, somebody impersonating Lee Harvey Oswald in, in, the, in the weeks leading up to the assassination. And this could certainly be one of those instances. Um, uh, I don't believe it was the real Lee Harvey Oswald because, like you said, he was supposed to be at work, and we we don't have him missing work that day. Um, so it would have to be somebody that's impersonating him. Now, you know, you have that instance, of course, and then you have something at the uh, downtown Lincoln Mercury um, where he did some wild test drive and uh, claimed he was going to come into a lot of money soon and made a big deal about things. Uh, and then, of course, never went back and, and bought a car. But he took this guy on a wild test drive that was basically the same route as the motorcade. Um, and then you have an instance at a shooting range uh, where somebody was uh, acting really boisterous and shooting other people's targets and and doing all kinds of stuff. And so you have all these instances of people claiming to have, have come across this Lee Harvey Oswald guy, even the uh, Texas Employment Commission. Um there was somebody impersonating Oswald there because two different people came in using that name. And the woman, uh, Laura Cottrell, who I did a show on a couple of weeks ago, you know, she identified um, actually uh, Jack Ruby's uh, employee, a guy by the name of Larry Crayford as, as one of the Oswalds that she talked to. And of course, one of them was the real one. And one of them was this guy claiming to be Lee Harvey Oswald. 
So there's all kinds of crazy stuff like that. Uh, when you start diving in and digging now, when it comes to Ralph Yates, was he telling the truth? He might've been, but if he was one of these uh, guys who was really, uh, you know, set into his ways and if he was institutionalized, not of his own will, I mean, he could have just been a crazy guy uh, or it could have been done, you know, uh, intentionally by the authorities to just get rid of this guy and shut him up because he might have prevent, uh, presented a, a problem. Who knows? But uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of that in the lead up to the assassination where we have somebody impersonating Oswald. I so I thought this one. Have you have you looked at this story before this Yates story? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I thought that this way. This was totally new to me. I, I thought this was interesting for a couple of reasons. One, he immediately contemporaneously went to his work and told a coworker who verified that. And then two, after the fact, he he um, he, he was. So the subject of memos from J. Edgar Hoover that have been people have seen, I guess they've been disclosed where, you know, Hoover was pushing for them to do these multiple polygraph tests. Um, and, you know, and then the next thing, you know, he's institutionalized and then he's dead, you know, a decade later. I mean, just break this down a little bit. Right. So you got a you got a guy picks up a hitchhiker. Mm-hmm. And I realize that in the 60s, picking up hitchhikers is far more common than occurrence than it is today. That's how my dad met my mom, by the way. Uh, that may, uh, solves a lot of riddles for me, just you saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to have to contemplate that more later and maybe make some notes. But mm-hmm. so this guy picks up a hitchhiker who is carrying a brown wrapped package that appears <laughs> to be rods. And he says, I'm I'm. I'm hitchhiking down the road with my curtain rods. Correct. Because that makes tons of sense. Right? I mean, most people who are going to hang curtains pick up the rods. Okay. But then they get stranded and they need to be you know, picked up by you know, someone else. So they're hitchhiking. And then after saying their curtain rods, the guy then reveals, no, they're actually rifles. And listen, I'm a, I'm a highly trained, uh, you know, foreign operative. I, and I've been inserted into this country for the purposes of assassinating, you know, arguably the most powerful man in the world at the time. And, and so I'm hitchhiking down the road in an effort to make that happen. Well, I don't think and, you said all that. I mean, I think you're mischaracterizing. What well, yeah, said. but I mean, that's that's I know. But that's that that's the story. Right. Is that this this guy is that's what he is. Right. I mean, is, isn't that what we're saying? Is that, the, the, you know, he was involved some way in the Kennedy assassination? I, I, I'm not I'm not sure. But if he if this guy two days before the assassination, yeah, goes and does this or do whatever, and then goes yeah. back to this butcher sh- supply shop and tells somebody this story two days before the assass- the assassination, before anyone knows about curtain rods and brown paper bags and high powered rifles from the 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 top of buildings. Before any of that, um, well, that- yeah, I mean, I think it's worth investigating what Yates's story, right? But the 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 question I would have is. Okay, so let, let's just say that, 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 that the story is true. Let's say that that happened. Yates picked up a hitchhiker carrying curtain rods or purportedly carrying curtain rods. And the guy, the story unfolds. The guy starts saying, well, they're really not curtain rods or rifles. And, you know, what do you think about assassinating the president? Well, mm-hmm. Who is this guy supposed to be? Are we saying that he was actually involved? Why would someone or is he just some nut job that happened you know, purely serendipitously to be, you know, having assassinate the president fantasies while hitchhiking and, you know, happens to wind up in Yates's car, but he had nothing to do with the Kennedy assassination. I don't know, Rob, you would know, right? 
Well, by the way, Yates did pass the polygraph examinations. Okay. Yeah. That he was telling the truth. <clears throat> um, so again, it's really, it's really easy to prove due to the timing of this. Um, so if you deem it a real event, then of course you would need to be investigating why somebody is impersonating this guy before the assassination. Then it turns into a conspiracy. Oswald's not that low nut anymore. So, uh, a lot of these things like this got shut down very quickly and dismissed and went away or people died or, you know, so not surprising about this, this whole Yates thing um, and, and how it went down. Although it is a, is a compelling story, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, and I also, Brad, get the, the institutionalization after the fact, I mean, the guy was involuntarily, um, put into an institution woodlawn hospital which is i think is the same one from airplane um <clears throat> but uh yeah i mean i and i suppose that's something that's par for the course as well but it, it's just you get all of these odd stories that pile on top of one another this the three tramps the whole clay shaw deal with the guy with the fake eyebrows and the wig the joe pesci remember joe pesci i do remember joe Good yeah, guy. yeah yeah that whole deal. And then you got the the woman on the I mean, the, the, the stairway. Right. I mean, Oswald was supposed to make it down the stairs in like a minute, 20 seconds. But there were other people on the stairs at various points who didn't see him. And he was supposed to go from the top of the building to the bottom. Then he's on the bottom and he's got a Coke. Where did he get the Coke? He goes to the machine, buys the Coke. When you start plugging that into the timeline, it doesn't fit the timeline. I mean, all this stuff. And he didn't bring it from home to answer your next question. It was from the machine. Um so, uh, you know, all this stuff raises all sorts of questions. Then you get into the gun and you get to the Cubans, you get to New Orleans, the, the Bannister stuff with the Ed Asner character, Lou Grant, the Lou Grant stuff. Yeah, good. That also a good character. Yeah. And his bit, you know, the FBI guy in the same building is the, the Cuba guys. And then which side is Oswald on? And it goes on and on. And it, it can make your head hurt, but it shows the importance to me anyway, just someone who's kind of fascinated by this whole thing, um, uh, the, the importance of getting all these documents out there. And I'm sure all the good ones have already been destroyed, but all these documents out there making a full disclosure and at least trying to come to terms with the past where a lot of bad choices were made. I mean, what do you all think about that? Who honestly believes, and I would be interested in Rob's take on this as well, but who honestly believes that if at some point in time, People were dumb enough to write documents that, you know, pointed a finger at the actual responsible parties. If even if that even happened, at what point do you think those documents did not get destroyed? Yeah, Rob, what do you think about that? Do you think there are any documents out there that could be meaningful for the uh, for the search for the truth here? I'm of the opinion, too, that uh, I would assume that Richard Helms had any damning documents destroyed or burnt. But at this point in the game, it, it probably would have happened already. And if we haven't got it by now, we're not going to get it. In my opinion, you know, I'm not saying the CIA was directly involved in the assassination because I, I don't believe that. But my opinion is that they're trying to hide some kind of relationship uh, with Oswald. Because, of course, you know, the CIA is not really supposed to be doing anything on domestic soil. The whole thing is just screams of some kind of involvement that I, I don't think that they would have wanted themselves associated with. 
Well, again, folks, there you have it. You have once again come to not only the right place, but the only place to get the information you need, where some of the world's greatest mysteries are regularly and finally solved. I think we have resolved that while Rob runs the very fine Lone Gunman podcast, which everyone should listen to, he is not, in fact, the Lone Gunman. We've probably got a little bit more chiseling to do before we do, in fact, identify the Lone Gunman. And and so could be more than could be more than one gunman. I mean, it could, could be. Yeah, well, that's right. Multiple. That's right. It could be the uh, not lone gunman, the friendly gunman. And we may get to the bottom of that over the next week. So if you want to find out if that's true, you'll need to be right back here next week as we will as well on IP Frequently. This has been IP Frequently. Once again, clearing a forest of lies with the machete of truth. You're welcome.